So back in California, we, our family had passes to Disneyland, and we used to go all the time, loved it. Uh, we only lived about 25 minutes away, so whenever we had free moments, we'd just drive down and spend time at the amusement park. Uh, such an incredible opportunity. We got to see every part of the park. We went on all the different rides, went to all the different places that you could go and visit, except for one. There's one place, well, maybe two, uh, they have a dream suite that is there in Disneyland that's pretty amazing. If you ever get a chance to stay there, uh, you might have to be a celebrity or, or a billionaire, one of those two. The other place that is there is uh, called Club 33. It is in the French Quarter. It's an exclusive club that is only open to people that have a membership in that club. In order to get a membership, you have to spend about thirty dollars to $40,000 to get it, and then about ten dollars to $20,000 every year to maintain it. Now, Walt Disney made this exclusive club for a, uh, a, a space in the middle of this park that is filled with thousands and thousands of people where celebrities or visiting dignitaries could come in a quiet and serene space to, so, he, so he could just spend time with them without the hustle and bustle around and uh, entertain them. It slowly became something uh, exclusive for people just to be a part of and enjoy inside the park. Once you enter, it is uh, filled with incredible memorabilia. You can shop for exclusive things only Club 33 has. You get a prefix menu that is there. It costs you about 150 bucks to do it. Um, it is an incredible experience. I'm talking as if I have done it, and I have not, because that is one place I couldn't, but my sister did. Here's a picture of her at uh, Club 33 with her friend. Evidently, she knew a friend who knew a friend who knew a friend who was a lawyer who had a membership and put a reservation in for them to go. Uh, I, I am so jealous. I would have loved to have been able to be a part of that, although I don't think I would have done the $150 dinner. Man, alive. That is a crazy place. Well, if you think that that is exclusive, well, I have news for you. There is an even more exclusive club in the world. It is called the Richmond's IMC, International Millionaires Club. Uh, if you want to be a part of this exclusive club, it'll only cost you a meager $15.2 million. Uh, but that will last you for about 30 years, so you're, uh, it works out over time. People get that membership, and it gives them VIP access to super yachts or yacht clubs or jockey clubs or country clubs or golf courses, luxury hotels, restaurants, all over the world. If you had memberships in all those places, it would cost you far more. But it's $15 million to be part of it. Oh, and by the way, there's only 100 spots available, so if you want to take part in that, you might want to hurry up and, and join. There are lots of exclusive clubs in this world, aren't there? From nightclubs to country clubs to food and dinner clubs to even book clubs. But they all have the same premise. To be part of this club, you need to pay this, do this, have this, look like this, be this, in order for you to be a part of it. And if you don't have that, then you are excluded. What's interesting is that takes place in so many different places in the world. It even happens in the church. The faith background that I was a part of had a mentality like this, where in order to be part of that church, you had to have a specific look about you. The men could not have long hair. 
They could not have facial hair, although they could have mustaches. I don't know why that was allowed or not. Um, you could uh, always have, you always had to wear a suit and tie to church when you went to church. Uh, women always had to wear dresses, could never wear pants. If you wore shorts, they had to be culottes. You could never go to a movie theater uh, or watch a movie. That was not allowed. Neither was listening to music with a beat in it. No, I did not grow up Amish. But it may seem similar to it. There were all these restrictions, and I don't think that they intentionally wanted to portray that this was the case, that you had to look like this in order to be part of it, but that's what actually it turned into, that if you wanted to be part of this church, this is what was the expectation for you. In other words, in this church, you had to behave. This is how you behaved in this place, and then you could believe, and if you believed the right thing and behaved the right way, then you could belong to that church. Now, I don't think that was their intention or what they want to portray, but that is exactly what took place. Sadly, that's what takes place in many churches. A lot of churches have divided or have started because of differences inside of the church, whether those are music-style preferences or translation of the Bible preferences or theological differences, which is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, understanding of baptism and communion differences or whether or not we should include or exclude liturgies. All of these have resulted in churches dividing or separating over the years. Nothing is new in this world. But what it has done, it has led many people to look at the church as an exclusive community, that if you wanted to be a part of this community, you have to do these types of things. When it comes to most churches, all of us bring things into it. We're all different. Each of you have differences in your lives. You have differences in the way you think. You have different preferences in what you would like in a church. A lot of people go church shopping because there are certain things that you're looking for in a church. But what is more important than all of those things, and there's a greater truth that needs to be pointed out, and it needs to become the foundation of not just our church, but every church. The greater truth is this. Who we are in Christ supersedes all the differences in our lives. Who we are in Christ supersedes the differences in our lives, whether that's music or Bible or oftentimes theological preferences. We all have those differences, but who we are in Christ matters more. Today we're going to discover through this section of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church that uh, the, there's a differences in the church. There's a lot of things that take place in a church that could divide us. But those differences don't matter anymore because our unity in the church is not based around things like our preferences or our income or our sex or ethnicities or our styles or our backgrounds or our abilities or our skills or our uh, preferences or even our political affiliations. Rather, our unity is centered on the revolutionary and spectacular work of Christ. That is the only thing that should and could divide us. Because all of our preferences, all are dissolved when we stand at the foot of the cross. So let me say it again. Who we are in Christ supersedes all the differences 
in our lives. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. We're going to read verses 11 through 22. It's on page 976 if you're looking to get there. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. It's amazing. God, we ask that you would open our eyes so that you can teach us how to be one in you. Remove the barriers and the differences and the division that could exist and does exist. And may we honor Christ through the unity that we share. We ask in your name. Amen. In this passage, Paul wants us to do four things. First, he wants us to remember who we once were. Then he wants us to remember what Christ has done because of that. And then from that moment to stretch forward and to realize who we are now, what has changed in our life, and then to realize what Christ is now at work doing, not just in our lives, but in the world. So coming off this incredible passage that Kyle talked about last week from Ephesians chapter 2, the incredible wonder of our salvation, Paul takes his readers in a trip to the past to amplify the greatness of the salvation that we received particularly the Gentiles who were not part of the nation of Israel. So this is what Paul says first and foremost. Remember who you were. Verses 11 through 12 is where that is talking about the differences. And the first thing that you'll notice when Paul starts talking is that these people, the Gentiles, you Gentiles, you were separated you are separated and strangers. That's a pretty interesting thing. When you look at all the division and the discrimination in our world, you cannot miss the one that takes place between Jews and Gentiles. That has stretched, stretched back all throughout history. You see example after example of clashes between those two groups. There is such hostility between Jews and Gentiles, even to this day. You can see this right from the start of what Paul is talking about. In this passage, he says, you remember, you Gentiles were once far off. You were once the uncircumcision. You were the 
uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, this mark that separated the people of Israel, God's chosen people, from everyone else in the world. So there was God's people and then everyone else. They didn't fit the category. Only God's people were special. So God chose the people of Israel, but he chose them not just to be a special people, but so that they could receive God's blessings and that they could be a a conduit to bless the entire world through them. They were to get the knowledge of the one true God and pass it so that the whole world could see it and come to know God. But the people of Israel, they would rather condemn the Gentiles than to witness to them. So what you see throughout history is you see contentions just keep building and building and building between the two so that there's such hatred between the two groups. In fact, if you read through the Talmud, one of the examples that's there is a story of a rabbi. There's this Gentile woman who comes to Rabbi Eliezer, and he comes, she comes to him and says, I am sinful, and I know that I'm sinful, and I want to be in a relationship with the one true God. I'm willing to confess my sins and repent, and I want to be accepted by him. It says that Rabbi Eliezer says, the door is not open to you, and slammed it in her face. That is so true. I remember even in my mom's uh, case, my mom grew up Jewish, and when she went to marry my dad, who was a Gentile, her mom threatened to have a funeral for her and completely disown her from the family. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Even the apostle Peter Peter, who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus' heart for the whole world, had incredible disdain for all Gentile people, so much so that it took a special vision from God to show him that all people could now be included in the church. This is what he said to the Roman centurion Cornelius. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. There was an incredible animosity, but no further display of that was greater than that with the temple that was built. There were a few different temples throughout time, but the one that was in existence at this time when Paul was writing was the one that was built by Herod uh, the Great. And when he built it, he built it in a specific way. And I want to show you some of those things. You'll see the illustration up on the screen. Right outside of the the main part of the temple is the court of the priests. That's where they they function uh, around the altar, and uh, that is the court of the priests right outside the temple. Right out from that is the court of men or the court of Israel where the men of Israel could fellowship and be. Outside of that, further east in that little column area at the top is the court of women. And the women could only stay in that place, so getting further and further away from the temple. Now listen to this, though. Outside of that, going further east, you had to take five steps down from this elevated platform to a a walled platform. And then once you get past that, you have to take 14 more steps to another wall that goes all the way around that temple mount. And outside of that wall, that's where the Gentiles could be. So the Gentiles could be all the way around, and they could always look up to see the temple. They could always see it from anywhere, but they could never get anywhere closer to it than that spot. In fact, there is pillars all scattered around that wall. It's about six feet high, stone barricade. On, that, on those pillars, there were signs written in Greek and in Latin that said, trespassers, it didn't say trespassers will be prosecuted. It said trespassers will be executed. 
In fact, Paul himself realized this when he, about three years earlier, took somebody into the temple with him. The Jews thought he was bringing a Gentile into the temple courts, and they amassed a huge mob to kill him. Interestingly enough, the person he took with him was a believer from Ephesus named Trophimus. But this whole temple showed the distinction, how Gentiles were separated far away from where God was. There was nothing that could bring them closer. It's incredibly obviously and purposely emphasized that Gentiles were completely separated from Israel. They had no connection with the one true God of Israel. They didn't have his laws to follow. They didn't have a connection to his people to be a part of. They could not worship him in truth. And all of this was seemingly impossible to reconcile. So the Gentiles, as Paul is pointing out, they had no messianic hope of the Savior. Their history had no purpose, no plan, and no destiny except for the judgment of God, which they didn't even know about. Paul says, this was your life. And not just that, you were separated from God and you were helpless and hopeless. Those who have no Christ have no commonwealth with God's chosen people and no covenant of promise also have no hope. No hope. See, they didn't have any hope because true hope can only be built upon a true promise. And that promise has to be made by someone who is true and not just true, but who is powerful enough to accomplish and fulfill what he has promised to do. Hope is what brings meaning and blessing to life. Hope is the energy of life. It's the confident assurance that we have a blessed future in the plan of God. See, the people of Israel had this blessed hope. They knew that God had made them promises and that he was powerful enough and promised to, to fulfill them and confirm them in their lives. They had every resource at his disposal. They had God's promises. But the Gentiles didn't have any of this because they did not have God. It's not that they didn't believe in a God. In fact, they believed in a, a pantheon of gods, so many different gods. The problem is that they didn't believe in the one true God. What a very, very sad commentary. For to be without God is to be in the wilderness without a guide. It is to be on a stormy ocean without a harbor or a pilot. It is to be sick without medicine or a physician. It is to be hungry without bread and weary without rest and dying without the light of life. It is to be an orphan wandering around in an empty and ruined home. The Gentiles had no hope. This was the terrible state that they had found themselves in before Christ. They were cut off from the Messiah they were cut off from the people of God, cut off from hope. They were cut off from God himself. And as William Hendrickson so brilliantly summarized, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. This is not much different than what we see in our world today, is it? So many people today feel alienated. They feel distant. 
They feel defeated and discouraged and depressed. They feel like something is wrong in their life and they're missing something. They just don't know what it is and they feel powerless to change it in their life. They, like the Gentile believers here in Ephesus, feel the same. Separated, alienated from God, without hope in this world. But Jesus changes all of this. Paul goes on to say, remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. In fact, that's what he says, starting in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That term, brought near, is so important. God did what was seemingly impossible to anyone else, this dramatic reversal has taken place for the Gentile readers who were once so far off, so distant, so separated from the life of God, have now been brought near. That term brought near is actually a term that was used of a Gentile becoming a proselyte to the Jewish faith, being brought near into relationship with God. But here's where things split and are different and are even more amazing. You see, these people, the Gentile readers, they're not coming into the Jewish religion. They're not becoming proselytes of the Jewish faith. They are being brought near into a relationship with God himself. Not a religion, but with God himself in a newly created community brought near. It's what Jesus said during his Passion Week. Uh, if you remember that time when Jesus was leading up to his death, it said that certain Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Greeks, Gentiles, they wanted to see Jesus. And know what Jesus said? He said this in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. The cross would draw all of humanity around it by its infinite love and sorrow, by its perfect unity of the world's need and its guilt inside of the cross, and the perfect submission to the sentence of God's fair and just law against man's sins. And in this, the cross of Christ, both Jew and Gentiles found themselves weeping together at the foot of the cross, sharing in forgiveness and united into one person. But it gets even better because Paul says, it's not just that, but he has brought you in. Brought you in. Jesus in this passage says that he abolished, he he took away all of the, the laws and the commandments that were causing the hostility, the division between people in this world. He demolished it, killed the hostility because of the cross. Now, I want you to understand me really clearly with this. It's not that Jesus abolished the moral law, that there's no, no need for us to follow the moral law anymore. That's not what is being said here. What's being said is this is no longer a requirement for salvation. This is not the way to be in a relationship with God. Because if we only held to these commandments as our way to be right with God, we could never obey it no matter how hard we try. So we'd constantly be separated from God and from each other. But because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, he completed what we could not. And because Jesus paid the price on the cross for our disobedience, 
That's something we could never do either, that Jesus paid for not only our disobedience, all of our sin on the cross, but he lived a life that we could never live perfectly according to the law. And because of that, he abolished the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both, both of them were divisive. Both of them were put away by the cross. See, acceptance with God is now because of Jesus on the cross alone. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we are brought into a relationship with him together at the foot of the cross. This is just an amazing thing for me. And what's even more amazing is how he puts it. He says, we are now given access to God. That word access is prosagoge, which means uh, it's similar to another word that was used of an individual in a court who was the one person who would take someone from outside and introduce them to the king or the monarch. They were the access point. Jesus is our access point to the Father. We could not have access to God's presence by ourselves. We could never obey the law well enough. We could never pay for our crimes enough. But through Christ, we now have access with God, to God, because of what Christ has done on the cross. We are welcomed only because of him. So when you see these Gentiles who are prevented even from getting close to the temple, and the Jewish people who were prevented from going inside the temple for the most part. Both of them now could now go into the presence of God himself. There's no longer a curtain separating, no longer a barrier, no longer a division. There are no credentials that you had to have anymore. You had full access as God's children because of what Christ has done on the cross. And what is amazing is that he has brought us together as a result. The Jews and the Gentiles, who were once so different from each other, God has now brought together in one people. Uh, two people, uh, their names are David Sachs and Peter Thiel. They wrote a book called The Diversity Myth. They chronicled the failed experiment of Stanford University in trying to make their whole campus politically correct. It was a failed thing, measure that they tried, and they... they ended up causing far more hurt and problems than they created. And this is what both of them said in their book. People in their natural state will never get past the barriers that separate them because of their cultures, races, and economic standings. Even the best attempts of social engineering are destined to failure. The only force that can bring opposing ideologies together is the gospel. You see, the cross is God's answer to Judaizing, racial discrimination, segregation, apartheid, anti-Semitism, bigotry, war, and every other cause and result of human strife. But when that changes, when we come to faith, when we meet at the cross, it doesn't matter what our backgrounds are or where we've come from, what our faith used to be. We all meet together at the cross, and he brings us in where we once were so separate. I remember hearing a story of a missionary in Africa, and he was moved to tears because as he was about ready to administer communion, he looked out, and he saw members of warring tribes together in the same church. 
He saw the chief of the Nagoni tribe that was there with many other members of that tribe. And he remembers the chief telling them stories of how they would go out and it would be a successful time when they would go and they would rape and kill women. They would kill as many men from other tribes as they could and they would leave a wake of ruined and burned villages. But now here in this church, there was the Nagoni tribe standing, worshiping, singing, praising God, and sharing in communion with members of the Tumbuka tribe who they used to hate and kill and murder. Once they were divided by the spilling of each other's blood, and now they unite around the spilled blood of their common Savior, Jesus Christ. It's like this. A lot of times in our lives, we cannot avoid the fact that we are very different culturally different, preference different, politically different. We are so different. And if you have magnets, they have two different poles. If you have one side, it draws together. But if you flip it around, the, the magnets no longer attract each other. They repel each other. No matter how hard you press, you can never get the magnets together. This is what it's like in our world. We have so many differences that will divide us, especially in the church. And no matter how hard we try to accomplish putting ourselves together, we can never get close. Even in the church, when we try on our own to do this, we can't get close. What we need is a unifier. We need one magnet that's bigger than the other two that can join the two together into one and that's what happens at the cross. The magnetism of the cross is so much greater than all the differences in our lives, greater than Gentile and Jew, greater than all of the, our preferences and styles and likes and backgrounds and gender and identity. The cross is what sucks us in together and unites us as one people. So Paul says, I want you to realize now, because of what Jesus has done, I want you to live now as you are. You are a new community. You have been changed by Christ. You have been forgiven. All of those old commandments have separated you, have been put away. All that hostility that separated you has been gone, has been killed. Now you are together as my community, holy and together in uni unity. You've been healed by God's presence. So I want you to realize who you are now. Realize who you are now. Verses 18 and 19, Paul goes on to say, you are now one people. You are now one people. What used to be a source of division has been taken away entirely. In relationship with Christ, it's not that the Gentiles have now become a Jew or the Jews have uh, thrown off their national identity and have gone to become a Gentile. Neither has become one or the other. Rather, God has made an entirely new people out of the two. When he says he made a new man, he has taken both Jews and Gentiles and, this, and just kind of threw away their identities before, and now has given them a new one. He says a new man, that word new, kainos, it actually is not saying new as in a, just fresh off, like if you have a car that's fresh off the assembly line. It's the same car as the ones that have come before it. It's just new. That's not the word. The word that is being used here is new of a different kind. 
completely different than what was before. This new person that God has created is unlike anything else he's ever had. It's no longer Jew. It's no longer Gentile. It's one person. The new person in Christ is now one. They're no longer Jew or Gentile, but only Christian. Every other identity before that is former. It's the past. You know, before this time, before the cross, these groups could never meet. They could never talk together. They could never eat together because of restricted foods and required washings and ceremonial contamination. Now they can meet and talk and eat with anyone. Before Christ, they could never worship together. The Gentiles, the Gentiles could not worship in the temple with the Jews, and the Jews would, would never worship in a temple of the Gentiles. But all those were removed, and now they're together worshiping in neither a temple or a sacred place, but worshiping as one people, one family. So one people, a new people, and now you are a new family. So many problems come in churches when we neglect to see that we have changed. Our identity is different. We are no longer the same people that we once were. We're still clinging to our old life or our old identities, or maybe we're trying to become too much like an identity, a false identity that church is trying to create. What identity we need to take is that we are all one family. We're not from different backgrounds. We're all because of Christ. We're in the same family, brothers and sisters. It gives us a new family. Heavenly citizenship, as Paul says, and heavenly uh, family membership, they're not distinct but they're different views of the same reality because every kingdom citizen is a member of God's family and every member of God's family is a kingdom citizen. There's no distinctions before God, so there shouldn't be any ones between us either. There's no prize kids. God doesn't love me more than he loves you. God doesn't treat you any differently than he treats the people on this side. Just because you guys are sitting on this side doesn't mean that you're better than the people that are uh, sitting on this side. There's no better in the church. We're all one family together. Obviously, there's certain personality differences that we have that will draw us closer to some people and make us want to love other people from a distance. But as a whole, when we look at each other as family, as my brother, my sister, it changes everything. It's not you're different than me. You're my brother. You're my sister. It's a totally different identity one people, one family, one identity. The Gentile in Christ is no longer distinct. His false religion, his paganism, atheism is gone. His unbelief is gone. His hopelessness is gone. His godlessness is gone. For those in Christ, the only identity that matters now is him. The only identity that matters anymore is him. There's no longer any Jewish or Gentile Christianity. There's no black and white Christianity. There's no gay and straight Christianity. There's no slave and free Christianity. There's one Christianity because there's only one Lord over one church. We are united as one people. Our identity is Christ. And Christ is at work doing something phenomenal Can you imagine this? Here's God. He's taken people that are so different in this world, and he's brought them together as only he could by the magnet of the cross. 
And he's changed and transformed their lives so much so that they are no longer what they used to be. They are now his children, his people, living for his glory in this world. And Paul goes on to say, let me tell you what this means for you. Let me tell you what Christ is at work doing in your life because of what has happened in your life because of Christ. First, he's building you up on a solid foundation. Paul goes on to say that you are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. A foundation. That's a very interesting term. When I think of foundation, it moves my mind back to when I was a kid. Uh, my dad was an electrician, but he loved doing and building things for us kids. So one time he set out to make a playhouse for all of us, and it was going to be amazing. He drew up the plans, and then he went to work setting it all in place. And he got all the materials ready, and he laid out the spot in our backyard where he was going to make it, and then he started to build the foundation. I thought my dad was taking far too long. And I was like, Dad, you're being a little bit ridiculous. Like, I don't think it should take like this long for you to build my playhouse. I mean, let's get going. I I need this thing up and built. But my dad painstakingly took the time to get everything in place, in order, foundation set, so that when he built the playhouse, it would not only be safe for us kids to play in day after day after day, but that it would last for some time. My dad did such a great job in building that playhouse that my wife and I, when we were still dating, 20 years after we moved from the house, we came back to that house and I peeked in the backyard and there was our playhouse still standing, still looked the same as when I was a kid. Although when I was a kid, I thought it was way bigger than it was. The point is this, that this foundation that was laid was so important because a foundation is what will make or break the building that sits on it. So when Paul is saying this church, the church that we are together as a whole, it has to be built on a solid foundation for it to last and to be stable and secure for all of time. And it's being built on the prophets and the apostles. Now, Paul is using that term because both of those were teaching gifts, apostle and prophet. And he's not referring necessarily to the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. What he's pointing out is these apostles and prophets of the New Testament, these are the people that were with Jesus, heard Jesus, saw him alive after his resurrection, or called by him like Paul and James. And these people, when they would write a letter, they expected the church to listen to them and to obey what they said. So what is basically taking place in this, what Paul is saying is this foundation that's being laid is this. This is our foundation. The Bible, specifically the New Testament, forms the foundation of the church. The church stands by its loyal dependence on the foundational truths that God has revealed here. So that when people come along and they say, no, you need to listen to this new word that I have from God, or God has revealed to me this, and it does not match up with this, it is false. What God is saying is this is our foundation. This is what's going to keep us secure. This is what's going to help us stand true in the tides that go up and down. Our foundation is built on the apostles and the prophets. But it's more than that. It's not just that foundation. But Paul goes on to say, Jesus Christ being its chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was that one piece in the foundation where everything in the building depended on. 
It not only lined up everything in the building so that it was straight, but most of the time it supported most of that foundation. It is the orienteer of the, of the building. It was the support of the building. It was the unifier of the building. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He supports the church. He unifies the church. He orients the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And here's Jesus holding his church together in unity. He's the chief cornerstone. Like Isaiah said in chapter 28, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Man, this is what we can hang all of our faith on, is this. The foundation, the cornerstone of Christ gets better. This is not just an empty building. This is a building that was meant for an inhabitant, and not just an inhabitant. The inhabitant that fills and inhabits the church is none other than the one true eternal living God that says in the Bible that the entire universe cannot contain him. Neither can man-made temples. God chooses to live and make his dwelling with people. Man, that's amazing. You see, at this time, both of his readers, Jews and Gentiles, they would have in their mind two different temples. The Gentiles would have the temple of Artemis or Diana, the, the god of the Ephesians, that temple that was there in Ephesus. And then back in, in Jerusalem, the Jews would have the, the temple that Herod built. Both of them were built to house the divine presence, but both of those temples are absent from the living God. God was not living in either of those temples. He was living. He is living in people. He has made his dwelling place with us. I want you to think about this truth for a second because it literally blows my mind. The one true God does not dwell in a material building. He does not live in a national shrine. He's not in a localized place. God's building is spiritual. It's a spiritual building, God's household, and it's international community. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and it's worldwide wherever God's people are found. God is not tied to holy buildings. He is tied to holy people. God is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people people, both individually and as a community. We are his temple. He lives within us. Paul mentions this new building that we're fitted together. Friends, I want you to see how great this truth is. God is building his temple, and it's us. And every single person who comes to faith in him is part of that building that term that Paul is using there, joined or fitted together. He's saying every single stone has a place. Every wall has the right color. Every piece of furniture is in the right spot for the right function. Each of us are put into God's building in the perfect place. There's not one of us that's misshapen. There's not one of us that's inappropriate. There's not one of us that's in the wrong place. 
God puts us perfectly in his temple, and he's building it day after day after day. As soon as someone comes to faith in Christ, they are all built into the temple that he houses, and his temple will be complete when the last person believes. That is the vision that Paul has here. That is the reality that he's trying to get them to grasp. This is why it is so careful, we must be so careful that we don't build divisions in a community where God has destroyed them through Christ. Because there are a lot of opportunities for all of these divisions to break us. We must be careful not to tolerate them because what God wants to do is make a billboard for the world to see. Look what I've done. Look what I've made. Look at these people that are so different that are now joined together. God intends his people to be a visual model of the gospel to just demonstrate before the world, before their eyes, the good news of reconciliation that what was impossible in any other way is possible with him. So we have to be so careful that we don't preach something by our actions that God does not want us to teach, that we don't display division in our church when God has completely removed it from us. Here's the point. I don't believe that here at Keystone we are perpetuating things that are, are causing divisions. I don't see a lot of divisions. I don't see a lot of people that are, are making much of their income level, or I don't think that we're making much of our ethnicities. There might be some times that I see a little bit of political differences and divides, but I think that it's less about what we're not doing and focus a little bit more on what we are doing. Friends, what are we doing as a church to display but more than that, foster and nurture a community of unity. What are we doing? Are are you finding opportunities to go find people to make them feel like they belong, that they are accepted, that they are loved by God and by us? Are you finding a place to get into other people's lives, either through a care group or serving in a ministry, so you're saying, I want to show unity that we love each other here and care for each other here? Are you stopping gossip when it comes in your conversations? Are you finding ways to display to the world the unity that Jesus died to create? Are you exhibiting the billboard that draws the world in that is longing for this type of community? In fact, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be, and the church should be seen to be what God's purpose is in Christ achieved, a single humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, evident that this is the dwelling place of God Only then will the world believe that Jesus Christ is the great peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory to his name. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that there is not going to be any differences in this church, that we will not find reasons to be a little bit different. But what I am saying is this. Those differences don't matter anymore. Whatever it is that divides us, differentiates us, it's gone. Because Christ creates a unity. Who we are in Christ supersedes all 
the differences that we have in our lives. So through Christ, we can refuse to be the judge or divider. We can see to it that these outward differences make no difference in our treatment of others. We can combine in our fellowship people from all different types and walks of life. We can help learn to respect and honor each other. We can soften the struggles and relieve many of the hardships with social differences that they create. We can diffuse a healing and purifying influence. Listen, friends, it is through the cross of Christ that outcasts become citizens, that strangers become the family of God, that idolaters become the temple of the true and living God, that the hopeless inherit the promises of God. Those without Christ become one in Christ. Those far off are brought near and the godless are reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, this is what we should work hard to achieve so that when we gather around the Lord's table, they will see an unreserved communion of people from all the classes and conditions in this world. God, we ask that that be the case in our lives, that we would honor you by our unity together, that you would be glorified in all that we do, we ask in your name. Amen.